This podcast is for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Well, From Crime to Crime (laughs) is filmed with a live studio audience right now. Yeah. First time ever. Don't get all weird and nervous. I, I try not to, but my wife's listening, so... All right. Well, you want to get right into this episode? I'd love to ask you about your Hawaii trip and all that, but I feel like this episode's going to be really long, so we'll talk about that some other time. Yeah, maybe at the end, but yeah, let's get into it. Okay. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about Paul Fronzak. Do they call him Fonzie? Because I know I would. <laughs> no, they don't, but it's Fronzak. Fonzak. No, it's F-R-O-N-C-Z-A-K. So you've never heard of Paul Fronzak, is the point. No, it doesn't sound familiar. Well, we're going to take it all the way back to Chicago in the 1960s. So Dora and Chester Fronzak have been married a couple of years, and they're having a baby. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, no, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. (laughs) So Sunday, April 26th, 1964, they go to Michael Reese Hospital, and Dora delivers a healthy baby boy. Which, to the Franzaks, is like a miracle baby, since about a year before this, they had been through a heartbreaking stillbirth. Mm, that does sound terrible. Yeah, so this is like, real. this is their first baby, well, it's technically their second baby, but like I said, their first baby was stillborn. So they're so happy that he's healthy, and he's like a perfect baby. They name him Paul Joseph Franzak. So back then, babies didn't stay with the mother like 24-7 like they do now in the hospital. When a baby was born, the mother was sent back to her room to like rest and recover. And the nurses would bring the babies in for like feedings and bonding time and then take them back to the nursery. Oh, you know, like babies in Norway or something get left out in the cold. It like strengthens their immune system or something. I think that's great. That sounds awesome. I I will look that up. Okay. That doesn't sound like you're being for real. Um, I am totally for real. Might not be Norway, but okay. <laughs> it's somewhere over there. <laughs> okay. So babies aren't with their mom 24-7 back then. They're in the nursery, and then the nurses bring them back and forth. That's why back then babies were switched a lot in the hospital. <laughs> like, not on purpose, right. but there was, like, Whoops. too many cooks in the kitchen type deal. Yeah. Yeah. So the Frontacs are on cloud nine, and the next morning, Monday morning, Chester goes to work at a machine shop where he's a, mach- a machinist in Chicago, because back then there was, like, no such thing as paternity leave. They were like, yeah, you got to go to work. It's Monday, bro. There barely is now, so I'm not surprised there's none there. Yeah. And so he goes to work. He passes out cigars to all his coworkers. Like, he's elated that they just had a healthy baby. Dora and baby Paul are still at Michael Reese Hospital. They bring Paul in to spend time with Dora for a feeding, and the nurses are coming in and out of her room, like, constantly. And after a little while, a nurse comes into Dora's room and tells her that she needs to take Paul back to the nursery because the doctor was there to examine him. So Dora hands the baby back to the nurse, and she leaves. A little while later, the staff starts to realize that Paul hasn't been brought back to the nursery for a while. And so they send somebody to Dora's room to get the baby, and she tells them that somebody already came and got Paul. And they were like, oh, okay, no big deal. So they leave, and after they shut the door to Dora's room, they were like, hey, this is a big deal. Nobody knows where the Fronzak baby is. Yeah. 
That's a big deal. Yeah. But they played it cool to Dora. They were like, oh, okay, great. And then they just like kind of left and they immediately start searching everywhere in the hospital because they think maybe a nurse like took him on a walk or something, you know, and he might still be in the hospital somewhere. They were trying not to like full blown panic. Why would a nurse take a baby on a walk? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like they thought maybe he was in the hospital somewhere and communication was just not happening for some reason. All right. I can understand that. Yeah. So they searched the hospital for over an hour. When they finally came to the panic mode where they realized that baby Paul was gone and that's when they called the police. So over an hour, this woman had a head start on stealing this baby. I mean, the grand scheme of things, that's not a long time, but like right now, that's a long time. Yeah. So they send a nurse in to Dora's room and they act like nothing's wrong. They take her to a feeding class and like a new mommy class and they act like everything is totally normal. Like they try not to panic her because, you know, back then they were like, oh, she's going to get hysterical. Yeah. We don't need that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, she's probably, she might. (laughs) Like you kind of lost her baby, but that's okay. (laughs) Fair. She has every right to be hysterical if she's going to become hysterical. Right. So they call Chester at work and they tell him that he has to come back to the hospital right away, that they think that his son was kidnapped. So he rushes back to the hospital and he's actually the one that has to tell Dora that their son was taken. Like she doesn't even know at this point that she handed her son to a to not a nurse, a lady that was just dressed up like a nurse. Wow. Which there was no way for her to know that, but. That's so like crazy. I mean, you hear about that stuff in movies and see it on TV, but you don't think about it actually happening. And here it is actually yeah. happening. Yeah. I don't think it happens nearly as much anymore as it did. Like I would certainly hope not. And 80s. I mean, you have to yeah. have a wristband with the same kid to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Like you better give a whole measure of security around nurses and, you know, just intercepting babies. Oh, yeah. Well, they have a lot of security at hospitals now. And they have, like, baby Lojack and stuff now where they put the little ankle monitor on them, like a little inmate. Oh, do they? Uh... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they do. We just need to give them microchips right after birth. Just right in there, and then there you go. Well, I mean, this was the time before they didn't even footprint this baby. Like, that wasn't even a thing yet at this hospital. Oh, wow. So they got, like, nothing on... Baby Paul, remember I said there's no birthmarks, no deformities, nothing. They had one picture of him that was taken like just a couple hours after he was born. All babies look alike anyway. And you know how much they change in the first couple weeks. Yeah. So it's like if they don't find him that day, this is going to be a problem. Right? You know? Like that's good luck. I mean, of a newborn? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Chester and Dora are devastated, obviously. This is now the second time they've gone to Michael Reese Hospital, had a baby, and then aren't going home with one. Oh God. I didn't think about it like that, but I mean, yeah. what? I, it was probably a lot to go there to begin with and now to come back with the same result for a different reason. Yep. Whew, man. Yeah. Dora couldn't eat or sleep. They were devout Catholics and they prayed continuously. The media pounced right away. They were all over this story because it was big news. I mean, a baby was kidnapped from a hospital. Hell, we're still talking about it. Yeah. That's true. Chester and Dora had no privacy. They had to, like, grieve in front of the media cameras because they were pleading for the kidnapper to bring their son back. The media was able to get the word out about the description of the nurse, so that was good that they were so involved. But it didn't help. There was no leads. 
a cab driver came forward and said that he had picked her up outside the hospital and drove her and the baby, which he didn't know was a kidnapped baby, to an intersection about 15 minutes from the hospital. And she got out, got in a different car and vanished. And where he took her, there was an L train. In Chicago, they have, like, public transportation called the L. Right. And there was airports, highways, like, an hour after he went missing. She could have been completely out of Chicago by that time. Yeah. I mean, so, absolutely could have happened. Yeah. But that didn't stop them from looking. They launched the biggest manhunt in Chicago history. Wow. Yeah. They searched, like, 600 residences. They recruited thousands of postal workers, you know, like mailmen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. to keep an eye out for families with newborns. They were literally asking mailmen to be like snitches. Like, hey, if you see a family with a newborn, call us. But that's, I mean, oh my God. They all look alike, you know? Yeah. How are you going to be able to figure this out? Yeah, but it didn't matter. They they just wanted to check out any newborn. You know what I mean? Because they were like, if the mom wasn't pregnant and, you know, then maybe it's baby Paul. Yeah. So they asked the mail carriers to like literally tip them off if they see any families with newborns. They even went through hospital records of the women who had lost babies in the last few years to check to see if any of them had newborns that they couldn't like account for. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, because they thought whoever would kidnap a baby was probably somebody who either couldn't have one or lost one. Yeah. But they still got nothing from that. No leads, nothing. So Dora and Chester were devastated. They gave lengthy interviews to reporters pleading with the kidnapper to bring back their baby, and they wouldn't leave the hospital. Like, Dora didn't want to go home without her son. So after about a week, though, it was time. They were like, we, we can't keep you here. You're not sick, right. you know? So they discharged her, and they were hounded by the media. Like, the whole way home, the media, like, followed them from the front door of the hospital to their car and followed them home. Like, they were ruthless. Just, I, I get it, but, on the, but I don't at the same time. Like, leave them alone. Yeah, it's like, get your picture and go. Like, you don't need to follow them home. What was the what's the point of that? Yeah. Going to their house. Like it just feels like back off. You know they're gonna be devastated. Like that's yeah. it. Yeah. So anyway, FBI agents went home with them on special detail. They set up like recording equipment on their home phone and stuff in case somebody called with a ransom demand, but there was never a call. The Franzaks and their doctor even put written instructions like on TV and in the newspaper for a special formula recipe. Because they said Paul had an allergy, and so they were, like, pleading with the kidnapper, like, you have to use this recipe because he has an allergy to milk. And then after they did that, they staked out the grocery stores looking for women buying those ingredients. Oh. So I don't even know if he really had an allergy or if they made that up to see if anybody would buy those ingredients. Oh, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, it's... I know. They thought of everything to yeah. try to find this baby. I mean... To think that the kidnapper would actually be listening in. Well, because most of the time when an infant is kidnapped, it's by somebody who's desperate for a baby. And they a lot of times end up raising them. Yeah. They don't usually kidnap infants to like murder them and leave them somewhere. Like there's that's not very common. Usually when an infant's kidnapped, it's to be part of that person's family. Yeah. Or that... sold into another family that wants a baby. Yeah. I was, th I was thinking that too, but... I mean, that's, yeah, it's hard to think about, much less say. Yeah. So they were really keeping the faith that whoever took him just really was that desperate for a child. So they were hoping that she would follow these directions, you know, wanting to take care of the baby. How specific were these ingredients, though? I mean, cause were they 
so specific that you could see someone buying all of them or like was this oh yeah it was it was kind of a weird formula it had like soy something in it and a bunch of other things that weren't like as common as maybe they would be today okay back then it was like no you give this kid milk that's how you do it <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> like i don't know i i read the ingredients and they were not crazy common like if somebody was buying all of them together it would be a pretty big red flag that this is what they were making you'd remember it like if someone was checking out you'd remember all those weird yes. things together okay yes so like i said they tried everything to find this baby but after a few weeks or months with no leads no ransom call the detail was reassigned and the fbi agents left Doran chester's house and they were left alone with pretty much the realization that they might not ever find their son i it just, that's just unfathomable to think about and although they were beyond devastated, they never lost their faith. They went to Mass every single day wow. and prayed for baby Paul to be returned. Yeah. They said Chester would wake up early for work and go to Mass first and pray and then go to work. I guess when you have nothing left to hold on to. Yeah, you've got to do everything you got. Yeah, you put everything into whatever gets you by, right? Yeah. So it was almost two years later when Dora and Chester got a call that a 14-month-old baby was found almost a year before. So the baby was almost two now. Mm -hmm. And he was found in Newark, New Jersey. And the FBI thought it might be Paul. So on July 2nd, 1965, in front of a busy department store in Newark, New Jersey, a baby that looked to be about 14 months old was sitting in a stroller. And apparently back then it was pretty common for moms to leave their babies in strollers out in front of stores and like go into the store and do their shopping and then just come out and get their baby. Just like in Finland. Yeah. So... Most people at first thought, oh, his mom just ran into the store for something. But after a few hours, people started realizing that there was no mom anywhere. Like the baby had been there for hours. So the police were called and they noted that the boy was well-dressed in a fairly expensive stroller. And he was in decent shape, except that he had a pretty bad cold and a black eye. A which black is eye? Cute on a, yes. <laughs> it's not cute on a baby. <laughs> No, it's not. Yeah. Well, it's not a good sign. No, definitely not. But I mean, obviously, kids can be clumsy and stuff, but usually a little older, not so much at 14 months. Like, they might be walking and stuff at 14 months, but you're still helping them. Probably, yeah. You're not letting them fall off the jungle gym at 14 months, I don't think. Like, that's a two, three-year-old thing to get black eyes. Uh, like, a black eye on a baby is a real bad sign. Is what I'm saying. Always. So the police thought because he was in an expensive stroller and he had a suit on and he was like obviously taken care of that he would be reported missing like any minute and they would find out who his parents are. He was taken to the hospital where he spent quite some time trying to kick this cold that he had. Apparently it was a pretty severe cold and eventually he was healthy enough to be discharged but by that time they still didn't have any leads on who he was. No missing kids, no frantic parents. Nothing. So they took ads out in the Newark papers and the New York City papers, but there was never any calls or tips. So they sent him to live with a foster family who baptized him and named him Scott because he needed a name. He had no name. He was an abandoned baby. We'll just call you Scott. Yeah. They named him Scott McKinley because it sounded like a strong name and he was a strong kid. I would have named him Scott Michael. Yeah. So he was happy and content with this foster family. They were like a really good family. They had been known to foster other kids in the past and they really loved this baby. Like they wanted to adopt him. You don't really hear the name Scott very much, do you? Especially no. at this time. 
Not too many yeah, Scots. I don't, I don't know very many Scots, actually. Now that, like, in any age group. <laughs> I know. But it, it is a common name, but yeah. I just don't know it's it. It's not. Name. When you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's named Scott. But you don't know very many Scots. Scott Spezio. Oh, yeah. He has a DUI. Does he? Oh, yeah. He had a big drinking problem. Oh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. So, anyway, where are we at? Oh, yeah, Scott McKinley, because he needed a name. So he was happy and content with this foster family, but the police had to try to figure out who this kid was and why he was abandoned. That's when an officer put it together that the timeline matched up for him to be baby Paul Fronsack from Chicago. They were like, he's 14 months old. Baby Paul's been missing for 14 months. Like, that makes sense, right? Yeah, it's all starting to add up. At least it sounds like it. Yeah. So there was no DNA or blood test back then that could prove that he was baby Paul, but the timeline matched up. And the only thing that they had, which was a picture of infant baby Paul in the hospital, the ears matched to this Scott McKinley. The ears matched? Yeah, apparently that's like a form of identification that the FBI uses, like a fingerprint, but it's not as like for sure. Really? Mm-hmm. But it's like a fo- like because the shape of your ear, I guess, doesn't change that much. And so like if they could tell you have like a detached lobe now and you didn't in this baby picture, then it's obviously not you. My lobes are detached. What about yours? I don't know. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah, yeah. They are. But the point is, is that they can use it to kind of like determine. And they had used this because that was the only thing they had from baby Paul. So they had used this against other babies that had turned up and they'd all been ruled out based on the ear shape. I don't. I mean, I guess that's I mean, it's the FBI. They know a lot more than I do. But that does not seem like a viable way to tell a baby apart from another baby. Yeah, it's not. And we'll get to that. <laughs> So anyway, a lot of these babies had been ruled out as being Paul based on the ear, but this Scott McKinley couldn't be ruled out. So they weren't like, for sure, this is Paul, but they're like, we think this could be Paul. We should tell the Fronzacks. So they called Doran Chester and told them that they should probably come to New Jersey to see if this two-year-old boy, Scott McKinley, was their missing baby Paul. And by this time, Dora was pregnant with their third child, and her and Chester rushed to New Jersey to see if this boy was their baby Paul. So there was FBI, police, media everywhere, and they bring in Scott into the room, and Dora yelled, oh my god, that's my baby. Oh, a mother knows a baby's ears. Everybody was stoked. They finally found baby Paul. Dora and Chester were whole again. The foster family that Scott had been with was devastated that they were losing Scott, but they were happy that he was found, you know, that his home was found. Yeah. And that his parents were good people. They weren't the ones that abandoned him. Right. So everybody is super elated. This is like a huge news story. This hits the headlines. It's like, oh my God, they don't find babies after two years of being missing. Like that doesn't happen very often. TV says if you miss, you can't find buddy, somebody in the first 48 hours, your chances go down a whole lot. Yeah. And a baby too, I would imagine is, that's a, that's gotta be a bigger difference, right? Like, because unless you know, like their ear shape and size and stuff. So because there was no way to prove he was Paul a hundred percent and he was abandoned and given the new name of Scott McKinley, the Fronzaks had to legally adopt their own son because his name was legally Scott McKinley now. Oh. But that was all just like technicalities. They took Paul home that day and they were a family again, but they had to legally adopt him. Because there was no 
blood test or DNA that could prove he was their son. All right. Yeah, that's how they had to do it back then, Grant. They didn't have DNA. I know, Or paternity. It wasn't possible to prove it. All right. So the Franzaks are happy. Once they got Paul back that summer, when they got Paul back, Dora had their second son, Dave, that November. Dave? Yeah, his his brother's name is Dave. Just straight out of the gate, they just called him Dave? No, I'm pretty sure his name's David, but... (laughs) In Paul Franzak's books, he calls him his brother Dave. So, oh, I mean, it's I can imagine holding a little baby like, oh, little baby David, but (laughs) little baby Dave. (laughs) Well, my dad's name is Dave. Yeah, and Pa calls him David. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. Yeah, he does. (laughs) Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he does. Should I argue with you about this? But like, (laughs) no, he does. He does. Graham called him David too. Graham used to. Yeah, she Graham would go back and forth, though. She'd call them both, but she did call him David a lot. Yeah. Anyway, that's not the point. The Franzaks are happy. They went from traumatic devastation, having two kids that they didn't really have, to now having, and then having no kids, to now having two kids again within a couple of months. Like, they got baby Paul back when he was two years old, and then Dora had their second son that November. So they went from, like, no kids to two kids quickly. <laughs> so I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, probably better than anybody. Yeah. So the Frontax were happy and healthy and all back together. It was an idealistic childhood. Their dad had a good job. They were involved in church. They went to good schools. They took family vacations every year. They lived in a good neighborhood. They had a good childhood. It wasn't perfect because, you know, there was that whole thing that Dora and Chester were like super traumatized by having a kidnapped child. So they were pretty strict with their kids. Yeah, I understand that. So... Their childhood wasn't perfect, but it was close to perfect. Some overprotective parents. You know, I mean, hey, it can be a lot worse. Yeah. Which, to be honest with you, I know can be chalked up to them being traumatized from having a baby kidnapped and then getting him back two years later and all the and being overwhelmed by having two babies in a couple of months. But also they're like pretty devout Catholics. Like it's possible they were going to be strict parents either way. That's true. Yeah. Good point. But they also never talked about the kidnapping again. They just put it behind them. They got their kid back. They had their second son, David, and they were moving on. It was over. So one day when Paul was 10 years old, he was snooping for Christmas presents, you know, like kids do. Oh, like adults do? I know. I do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know your (laughs) wife does it. (laughs) That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. My wife is the worst person on the planet who does that. Oh, my yeah. God. Well, she's not the worst person on the planet. No? But she is the worst at that. Oh, like, at she that. Does yeah. that. As far as people yeah. on the planet go, she's she's up there as, as a real great one. Yeah. But as far as yeah, ruining surprises go, like she's surprises. also way up there, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my so, God. So, anyway, Paul's doing this like 10-year-olds do. And he comes across a box in their crawl space because he thought, oh, my parents might hide our Christmas gifts in the crawl space. That's a good place to hide it, right? So he comes across these boxes and he starts opening them up thinking that him and his brother's Christmas presents are going to be in there. And he comes across all these sympathy cards and newspaper clippings about baby Paul Franzak being kidnapped. And he was super shocked because he did not know that he was kidnapped as an infant because they never talked about it again. They got him back when he was two and they never talked about it again. I can imagine not wanting to bring that part up. Like, yeah, of course they didn't talk about it again. Who would? Yeah, yeah. So he went running to his mom, you know, with the newspaper clippings in his hand. And he's like, hey, uh, what's this? <laughs> like, 
these are about me. And she said, yeah, you were kidnapped. We found you. We love you. The end. Like, there's no discussion. And he knew better. He's like, yeah, I kind of knew better than to argue with my mom. So there was no discussion. She told him that it wasn't his business to snoop around and put that stuff back. It wasn't his. And that was it. I mean, oh, that's so tough because like. That's a huge part of his story, you know? But, yeah, and it's about you. Yeah, it's totally about you. So it's you. like, how do you not? But he was a good kid. He knew better than to sass her, you know? He's like, okay, I guess I'm not asking any more questions about this. So it wasn't something that she wanted to relive, obviously. So growing up, he didn't ask, but he did think about it sometimes, but he didn't let it like run his life, you know? He was a, he was a kid. He was too busy playing the bass in a band, and he was popular with the ladies, because he was a pretty good looking guy. Way to go, Paul Fonzie. Yeah. Way to go, Paul so he Fonzie. Didn't, he didn't, <laughs> so he didn't like let it run his life, but he did think about it from time to time. And he also thought that some of the things that he was interested in were a lot different than his family. Like he was pretty obsessed with music, real into music. Like it was a huge part of his life, playing instruments. You know, he's real obsessed with the band Rush. And his parents and his brother like couldn't care less about music. Like he didn't like anything his brother liked or his dad liked. Like he just didn't have a lot in common with his family. That happens. Okay. It does happen. That's what I'm saying. Like he didn't focus on it, but he was, he would notice stuff like that. Sure. He was also always like, kind of running and off to the next thing. He was kind of like a wanderer. And none of them were like that. They were all very like grounded and rooted in where they were. So after high school, he joined a band and just moved to Arizona. He's just like, oh, I'm not going to do that college thing. I'm going to join this band. Goodbye. And he just like took off. Nomad. And he, I like it. Yeah. He worked a lot of like random jobs. And then when that band broke up, he moved home to Chicago with his parents to like figure out what the next thing he was going to do. And he joined the army for a little bit and that wasn't really his thing. So when his contract was up, he moved again and again. Like he just bounced around. He said it always seemed like he was chasing something or looking for something. Eventually he landed in Vegas and he got some headshots done because somebody told him he was good looking. Why doesn't he become an actor? So he got some headshots done and he became an actor. Nice. And he, wow. Yeah, he was in a few commercials and he was George Clooney's stand in on Ocean's Eleven. No kidding. What? Yeah. So, like I said, he liked being an actor because he, it was like a different job all the time. You know, instead of moving jobs, being an actor is like being in a different job all the time. Yeah, you're playing different parts. Yeah. He eventually got married, but he didn't have any children. He like moved to New York City and was working at a cigar shop and then he got divorced and back to Vegas. He just bounced from job to job and relationship to relationship very easily like he had no problems just like cutting connections probably because he bounced around so much when he was little yeah it seemed like he got bored easy or was restless or in search of something so once he was in his early 40s he decided to sign up for match.com he met a lady named Michelle and they hit it off right away and after dating for a little while they got married and they were happy he got a steady job and he like totally settled down he like found his place is this going to be a sister? What? No. Oh. Well, God, your brain works real awkwardly. I'm not... Is is this kid actually theirs, or are you going to tell me that it's not? Because that's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting them to be like, this actually isn't our kid, and this dude is dating or married his sister. Is that not where we're going with this? No. No. Oh. All no, right. Stop making assumptions. Well, you told me there's all these twists and turns and ands, and so I'm expecting twists and turns, yeah. and so I'm trying Don't to keep up. up. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get ahead of them. Don't make them up. 
Okay, so he meets his wife, Michelle. They're happy. He settles down. He has a steady job. And then Michelle gets pregnant with their daughter, Emma. And according to Paul's books, this seems to be a big turning point for him because it wasn't just about him anymore. He now had a daughter. You know, he couldn't bounce around and just do whatever. He describes that when she was born, not ever letting her out of his sight at the hospital. So his kidnapping did have a little bit of an effect on him besides just knowing about it. Like he literally would not let his kid out of his sight at the hospital, which is a lot more normal now than it was in the 60s. So he probably didn't seem like a weirdo. I feel like a lot (laughs) of people do that now. But him having a child really like brought up stuff for him. Those first few years are so formative. He knew what happened. If he was abducted, he knows about it and stuff. And that's staying with him. Like there's a reason why he bounces around like this. That You know, it's not just out of the blue. So one day Michelle's doctor asked him about his family medical history. And he was about to recite the Franzak's medical history like he always had when a doctor asked him about his family medical history. But then he realized like, what if that wasn't his medical history? Like he was kidnapped and they found him, but there was no hard proof that he was for sure Paul Franzak. Right. So he started to think like, am I doing my daughter a disservice if I just tell her this is her medical, you know, tell her doctor this is her medical history and it's not even true? So he started thinking more and more about his childhood and how different he was than his parents and his brother David. He really started to have doubts that he was the real Paul, which... Maybe he had always had doubts, but there wasn't really a way to know back in the day. But by 2012, there is a way to know. Oh, yeah. So one day he's at CVS or Walgreens, some drugstore, and he sees DNA tests right there at the counter. Totally reasonably priced. So he bought three of them. Wow. Yeah, he took them home. And when his parents came out for a week-long visit to see his daughter, Emma, he tried all week to have the guts to ask them to take it. He never got the courage. And then the day that he had to take them to the airport, they were all like standing in the kitchen. And he finally just like casually said like, hey, do you guys ever wonder if I really am Paul? What? (laughs) Just casually. Yeah. And his parents were like, well, I mean, yeah, but you're our son. Like, that's all that matters. And he's like, yeah, but if there was a way to know for sure, like, would you want to? And he describes this as he thinks he caught them off guard because they were like, well, yeah, I guess... Maybe. And so he ran into the <laughs> into the bedroom and grabbed the DNA test and came back. Gotcha. And he's like, here, swab these in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll know in four to six weeks. Yeah. So they sat in the kitchen and they swabbed their mouths and it wasn't a big fight or anything heavy. It was just like, yeah, okay. And it actually went a lot better than he, like he was stressing about it all week that they were there because The only other time he'd ever brought this up to his parents was when his mom yelled at him and told him to put it back and it wasn't any of his business when he was 10. Yeah. And at this point, he's like 40 something. Definitely. It's his business now. Yeah. So it took he they took it a lot better than he anticipated. So he drove them to the airport and they went home and he couldn't believe it was that easy. But then his parents obviously probably talked about it like the whole flight home and it had time to sink in and the ramifications and all that. They changed their minds because as soon as they landed in Chicago, they called Paul and said, never mind, we don't want to do that test. Forget the whole thing. And he's like, well, we already did the test. Right. Like, it's, it's already happening. Yeah. And I want to know. This affects me. I'm 40 something years old and I don't even know if that's my real name. Yeah. 
if I'm really your son or not. And they're like, well, we love you. You're our son either way. And we don't want you to send it in. Even being in his mid 40s and like a father and a husband, he was so respectful of his parents that much that he literally put the tests away in his desk drawer. And didn't send them in because they asked him not to. He didn't even send his own in? No, because they asked him not to. Eventually, after a couple of weeks, he finally said, literally, he says, walking by his office door where he knew the tests were in his desk. Every day he would like stop and look at him, you know? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad he finally was just like, look, I got to do this. Yeah, he finally said, I got to know for sure. And he mailed him. And he even said when he walked him to the mailbox and like pushed him in the, you know, the outgoing slot on... Well, you don't live here in Vegas, but here we have like all of our mailboxes here are like apartment mailboxes. You don't have like a mailbox on your house like we do in California. Oh. Oh, yeah. I've seen the community. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, there'll be like eight or ten. That way the mailman only has to go to like one box for every like ten houses. And then there's an outgoing box too. And he says when he shoved it in the outgoing box, it got stuck. And he had to like force it in there. And he's like, oh man, was that a sign? Yeah, no kidding. It sounds like one. (laughs) So a few weeks later, he got a call at work from Identigene, the company that he tested with. And they asked him like his security questions and all that kind of stuff. And when they figured out who he was, they were like, okay, so... There's zero possibility that Dora or Chester Fronsack are your biological parents. Oh, man. I knew it was coming. So he said, thank you. And he hung up. And then he said he just stopped breathing. Yeah. That's a big call to get. His whole identity was gone. His name wasn't Paul. He wasn't his parents' kids. All the differences between him and his family suddenly seemed like glaring and made so much more sense. Yeah. But he didn't even know his own birthday. Or how old he was. Like, he had no idea who he was. So his wife tried to assure him that he was Paul. He's the same guy. That this was big news, but it doesn't mean he's not him. Like, he has other identities besides Paul Franzak. He's also her husband and Emma's dad. And and I'm sure that made him feel good. But at the same time, it's like, well, but who am I? Totally. Who am I? Where did I come from? All those questions are probably racing through his head. Why the hell would anybody abandon a baby? And where the hell is the real Paul Franzak? That's another really good question. Because that investigation just fucking ended when they found him and gave him to the Franzaks. The FBI was like, case closed. Yeah, we thought an hour was a good head start. Now it's 45 years. Yeah, exactly. So he decided to set out to find the answers to all of these questions. He contacted an investigative reporter here in Vegas named George Knapp and told him his story. Said, are you interested in doing a a piece on this? Because he thought if he could get a little publicity for it, that the real Paul, if he was still alive, might recognize his baby pick or something in the history and come forward and say, I think maybe I'm Paul. This is a big story. He should call George Stephanopoulos. Ah, fuck. I know who you're talking about, the little guy with the big hair. This is a big story. He should have tried calling George Stephanopoulos. Yeah. Oh, you got it. Yeah, I got it. Nailed it. Yeah. It's because I'm familiar with Jesse Kasopoulos. Jesse Kitsopoulos, so I kind of cool <laughs> right. with Greek names. That's enough. So anyway, <laughs> he thought if he could get publicity, the real Paul might recognize something about his story and come forward, or his family that abandoned him might come forward or something. You know, he just thinks that he's got to start somewhere. So he starts doing these interviews with George Knapp and investigative work with this reporter and stuff. And the night before the story was airing in Vegas... He realized that he needed to tell his parents before they saw it on TV because he still hadn't told his parents. This just settled in with him? Well, no, he knew, but he also knew that they told him not to send in the tests. 
So not only did he have to tell them that he went against their wishes and sent the test in, but that also he's not their son. Yeah. And he's been avoiding that because that's a big thing to tell your parents. Oh, yeah. That's a big one. I mean, that's a big secret to keep. Yeah. But now with this report going to air on TV, it finally gave him like a deadline. Like, you have to tell your parents before they see this on TV. So he sent them an email explaining why he did it and that it showed that he wasn't their biological son, but he loved them and he wanted to find their real son for them. Like, this didn't change anything except that now we know. So the next day... The report aired, and he didn't hear from his parents, he didn't hear from his parents, and then a couple of days later, his cell phone rings, and it's his mom's phone number. And he just answered the phone like, hey mom, what's up? Like, tried to be cool, like play it off. Yeah. (laughs) But she was livid. She was yelling at him like, why the hell would you do this? Are we not good enough parents to you? You wanted to go find new parents? Why would you do this to us? Like, she was angry. And he tried to explain to her, like, I didn't do this to you. Like, I I needed to know for myself. I, I wasn't searching for new parents. I just needed to know. Yeah. And he heard shuffling like his mom had, like, kind of threw the phone down. And then his dad picked up the phone and said, you're an asshole and hung up on him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, what the fuck? I just want to know who I am and what happened to your real son. But he couldn't see their side of it, that they didn't want to know because that's going to bring up all this anger and emotion and everything. yeah, they didn't want to think about any of this. They wanted to die peacefully happy with, you know, as ignorant as they could be. They had moved on. Like, yep, that's our kid. That's all we need to know. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah. And he couldn't see that side of it. He just needed to know who he was. And they couldn't see his side either, that he needed to know who he was. Like, they just... At the moment, emotions were just taking over and they couldn't see each other's side. Then his brother David sided with their parents and was like, yeah, you're a dick. And the lines were drawn and they didn't speak for quite a few years. Wow. But Paul was in it. He was going to figure this out. Like he wanted to do it with his parents and his brother. But if they were mad and didn't want to go along with it, that was fine. He was still doing it. By this point, the story's huge news. Local reports about it with George Knapp kind of went national and everybody picked up on it. The Chicago news, everybody picked up on it because this was big news when it happened. And then it was big news when it when he was found in New Jersey. And now it's big news that it's not really him. It's a big deal. Oh, yeah. So he got some serious airtime, which is another thing that bothered his parents, Dora and Chester, because they were hounded by the media when this happened and traumatized by that. And then now that he did this again, they're being hounded by the media again, you know, 45 years later. Yeah. So that was a big problem. But when the story went national, he decided to go with Barbara Walters in 2020 to give his interview and his story to because he figured it was a big outlet. It was a huge thing. And he knew that a lot of people would see it across the country. And they did. So he was doing interviews and TV appearances, which really was spreading the word. But he was getting more and more like obsessed with figuring this out. And it started causing... A strain with his parents, obviously, but even in his marriage, he was spending more and more time trying to solve these mysteries of his life, and that meant less time with his wife and his daughter. But the TV appearances paid off because CeCe Moore saw him on TV and heard about his case. 
we know who Cece Moore is. She's a well-known, world-renowned forensic genetic genealogist who's solving all these crimes and everything now. But this was in 2012. This was before they were using genetic genealogy to solve homicides. At this time, she was well-known for helping adoptees and people of unknown origin find their origin. Yeah, sounds like a great job. Do you know who Cece Moore is? Yeah, I've heard of her. I don't know what she looks like, but I've heard of her. I think we, did we see her at CrimeCon or did they talk about her? Oh, I think we did see her at CrimeCon. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, so she gathered a team of four women and they're called the Search Angels. (laughs) That's a cool name. I like that. Yeah, and all these women have families and jobs and their own shit going on, but they got just as obsessed with Paul's case as he was, if not more. This case was before the DNA databases were as big as they are now. Right. So the work was a lot harder. They've given interviews now saying that if they uploaded Paul's stuff now, it would take hours to figure out his birth family. But when this happened in 2012, it took years. Really? Of really hard investigative work. Oh, yeah. Because the databases were just not very big. So now you might get like a second or third cousin and you only have to trace the ancestors back to like the great grandparents would be their common ancestor. But back when Paul's DNA was uploaded, the closest they were getting was like sixth cousins. You have to trace the ancestry back to like the 1600s to find the common ancestor. Wow. And then you have to build out thousands of family trees to find how they're related. Like it's, it was not very easy. I would never go to that type of effort for anything. (laughs) Yeah. Ever. Yeah, well, thank God these women did. Yeah, thank God they did, but I never would. Yeah, one of these ladies was even in the hospital with Lyme disease, and she was working on Paul's case from her hospital bed. Dude, that's gnarly. Lyme disease is tough. Yeah. But they did get a huge break because after the holidays, a new match popped up, which is pretty common because people get these kits for the holidays, you know, Christmas presents. Yeah, that's true. I think I got one for Christmas or something. Maybe my birthday. I don't know. So after the holidays, a new match popped up. His name was Alan Fish. And it said that he, the amount of DNA that him and Paul shared, he was probably a second cousin. So this was huge. This was the closest they'd ever been to figuring out who Paul really was. And they were pumped. So Paul and Alan connected on the phone. And it was such a cool thing because besides his daughter, he had never known anybody blood related to him. So the, he's talking to this Alan guy. It's the first relative he's ever met, technically. Blood relative. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's 100% true. Yeah. So this should have been like the Yahtzee moment. Second cousin, you should be able to be like, hey, who are your grandparents? And then we'll find out where Paul fits in, you know. But it turns out that Alan's kids had got him the DNA test as a Hanukkah present because he was adopted and they wanted to know more about his family history. <laughs> Oh, jeez. So now Alan and Paul are on this journey together now because Alan's trying to find his family and Paul's the first blood relative he's ever known. Yeah. They're both kind of like, what the hell? I guess we're doing this together. (laughs) Yeah. And Alan is still their best lead because he was adopted, not abandoned. So Mm, there would be records. There'd be adoption records, you know. But it turns out that it was a closed adoption. So they make plans to meet in New York City because Alan lives in New York. And they file to have Alan's adoption records opened so that they could find out anything about his birth family that might help lead to who they were and maybe Paul's identity too. So then, like the day before they were supposed to meet in New York City, Paul gets a call from Alan's wife. Alan passed away. What? 
Yeah, heart attack two days before they were supposed to meet. No way! Yeah, neither one of them had ever met a blood relative. They were both super excited to figure that out and meet and connect. And he passed away two days before Paul went to meet him. Oh, man. So Alan's kids and his wife still wanted to figure all this out, though, his birth family and everything. And they wanted to help Paul because Alan was so excited about it. Like, he was super excited to meet Paul. So they were able to meet up and they got the adoption records unsealed. And that led to Alan's birth mother, who was super young when she had him. And when they contacted her, she was pretty uncooperative. She wouldn't even admit that she was his birth mother. So she was like zero help. They were trying to figure out who Alan's father was because they had already found out that Paul wasn't related on the mother's side. So they needed to know who Alan's father was. But she wouldn't even admit that she was his mother. So she was like no help. And they were positive it was her? Yeah, they knew she was. Yeah, the adoption records were unsealed. They knew she was a mom, but they knew she was really young. Gotcha. And when they contacted her now, she wouldn't even admit it. And she wouldn't tell them who his father was. So they still have to figure out who Alan's father was without the help of his mom. So I'm going to speed this part up, but it took like eight months of super duper hard genetic work and really obsessive research because... Like I said, the mom gave no hints at all on who the dad was. So they knew she was young. So they figured it had to be somebody that she went to high school with or lived in the neighborhood. And so with all of their genetic stuff that they had figured out on Paul or on Alan, like super distant relatives, the last name Rocco kept coming up. Actually, a couple last names, but they focused in on one name Rocco when they finally found a boxer and a doo-wop singer named Lenny Rocco that was 15 when Alan was born. And they did more digging and tests and they found out that Lenny was Alan's father. But they had to find him like not through genetics. Like they searched old yearbooks to find people that went to high school with this birth mother. Like it was intense did, research. Did he even know that she had gotten pregnant? No. No. Wow. Really? No. So they had to tell, they contacted Lenny. He took a DNA test. He was like totally happy to do so. And they had to tell him that he had a son that he never knew. And also that his son just passed away. Oh, man. And also that he has a second cousin named Paul who was abandoned at birth. And do you know who his parents are? <laughs> that <laughs> you know, like that yeah. was a lot of information That's for Lenny to get at once. a heavy conversation to have with someone you're just meeting. Yeah. So Paul and Lenny do meet, and they hit it off. They both love motorcycles. They love music. Lenny, who's his second cousin, was like a doo-wop singer in the 50s and 60s, and he had like a couple albums and a couple hits and stuff. Like, they really hit it off. It's starting to make a little bit more sense. Yeah, they were like kindred spirits, which was cool for Paul to have like a connection like that. But, you know, he was still like not distantly related, but he was like a, he was a second cousin. So they still had a couple of branches that they had to figure out where Paul fit in. So by this point, Paul and Michelle's marriage was struggling kind of a bit because he was so obsessed with finding his family. And all of this shit was on the East Coast. They were all in New Jersey and New York. So like every time there was a lead or something, he had to fly across the country. And he was becoming pretty obsessed with finding his family at the cost of neglecting the one he already had. Right. At the cost of losing his family. Yeah. But he couldn't stop. They finally had a second cousin. This was the closest match he'd ever had. So Lenny had two cousins, one named Leonard and one named Gilbert Rosenthal. Lenny and Leonard, huh? Cousins. Yeah. Is there another short, is Lenny short for anything else besides Leonard? Because, 
Or I don't know. Just two cousins named Leonard. Or I wonder if Lenny was just his name and it wasn't short for anything. Like maybe <laughs> Lenny was his name. I guess. Is it just, is Lenny just a name? I've never heard anybody named Leonard be called Lenny either, but I don't know anybody named Leonard. I don't know anybody named Lenny. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't matter. This is really important part. Don't, don't confuse yourself right now. Okay. So Leonard and Gilbert Rosenthal, because of genetics and science, they knew Paul was one of those two guys' sons, Leonard or Gilbert, because they've ruled out everybody else. They ruled out other people on Lenny's other side, so they knew it was either Leonard or Gilbert Rosenthal were Paul's dad. So, turns out Gilbert was dead. He died in the 90s at, like, 60 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Leonard was kind of, like, missing. He was kind of a shit guy and kind of bounced around from, like, cheap motels week to week, you know? And so nobody really knew where he was. Great. Yeah. So they found Leonard's ex-wife, and she tells them some pretty harsh shit about the whole family. They all have issues in one way or another. Everybody is dead, violent, or estranged. It's like a whole mess. Leonard was super abusive, mean. She said you can't trust a word that comes out of his mouth. He's like a super liar. And she didn't want him to find her or her kids. So she was really guarded about helping Paul. Because she's like, I don't want Leonard to find us. Like, we got away from him. Yeah. You know, they, they're asking her these questions because they're like, well, could he be Leonard's kid or what? You know, and they take DNA tests like her kids and stuff. And then they find out that, no, she tells them that there is a missing child in the family, but it was Leonard's brother Gilbert's child, not Leonard's. Even though Leonard's a shit guy, it was his brother Gilbert that has a missing child. Oh, okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. So they're pretty sure at this point that Paul's real biological parents are Gilbert and his wife, Marie Rosenthal. They lived in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And by the time that Paul is looking for them, they've already passed away in the 1990s. They both died at 61 years old, two years apart from each other. So they raised three kids. And according to the aunt, there was also twins born sometime in the early 60s. And the aunt remembered the twins being there one minute and then just like gone the next. And they're like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, they had twins and they they were around for a couple years and then they were just gone. They were just gone? Like. Yeah. That's. That's what even the, the search angels and everything, they're like, how do you just, how are they just gone? What do you mean gone? Like nobody has a good explanation for where these kids went. The only answer that like all these extended relatives give when pressed about this is whenever somebody from Gilbert's side asked where they were, they always said that the twins were with Marie's family. And whenever Marie's family would ask where the twins are, they would say they were with Gilbert's family. And then eventually everybody just stopped asking. All right. Yeah, it was really like, what? Babies just disappear and we don't really care. Right? So the team found records that they that the Rosenthals had two older daughters and a son that was younger than the twins, but there was no record of the twins anywhere. So they set off on this new journey trying to find out if these twins really did exist because nobody seemed to, like, know for sure. And if they did, where the hell are they? And if nobody knows where they are, is Paul one of them? So the aunt remembered that there was a newspaper article about the twins because they were born on their parents' wedding anniversary and their older sister's birthday. So there was like a little blurb in the newspaper about that it was a significant date for this family. So one of these ladies, the search angels on C.C. Moore's team, drove to Atlantic City, went to the public library, and searched microfiche of old newspapers for hours until she found the article about the twins and their birthday. 
to prove that they existed because there was no proof that these twins existed. Wait, what do you mean there's no proof? There's no proof. People say they remember them, but there's no pictures of them. There's no nothing. So there's the search team at this time is still trying to prove that these twins ever even existed for them to be missing. Yeah. So this lady goes through microfiche of old newspapers for hours. And she finally finds this tiny little article on like page six of some random newspaper about the Rosenthal's and how they had twins born on October 27th of 1963. So they're pretty sure Paul is one of the twins that's missing and that he was born six or seven months before he thought he was. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because he was born in October, not April. Right. That would make sense when the police found him and he was abandoned and they thought he was 14 months old. He was really 21 months old. But twins develop slower because oh, they're twins. Oh, that makes it So if they would have known he was a twin, they might have guessed his age to be a little older, but they didn't know he was a twin, so... They guessed 14 months. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So they called Paul with the news and they asked him how he liked the name Jack. And they explained that his name was Jack and that he had a twin sister named Jill. He was like elated. Like they found his birth parents, his name, everything. They found he has a twin sister for Christ's sakes. You know, he was super excited. And then they told him that his sister Jill was missing. Her and Jack went missing at the same time and she was never found. So we're... They never, like, discovered where she went? I mean, I guess they're separated like that. It's possible she never yeah. knew. And if she did, she never wanted to know. He only found out because he found that, that article. Right. Well, no, I, know. I guess he found out through the DNA tests, but... Right. So Paul dives headfirst into finding his sister and to get answers on why he was abandoned. Like, he's finally found the answer of who he is, but now it's opened up all these other questions about why would his parents abandon him and where the hell is his twin sister? Yeah. Because they raised their other three kids. The two daughters that were older than the twins and the son that was younger, they raised all of them. So why abandon the twins? That Or at least one twin. We don't know what happened to Jill. So... He started with his oldest sister, who would have been old enough to remember the twins. But when he looked her up, turns out that she died when she was like 47. What? From what? I don't know. A heart defect or something or a heart attack. A hard life, probably. You'll find out. This family is not so awesome. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So then they find his younger brother, who had no idea when Paul contacted him, his younger brother had no idea that his parents had twins before he was born, and he felt really awful for that. God. They had a relationship for a little bit. They talked on the phone and tried to get to know each other and stuff, but Paul had a lot of questions, you know, about their family and their history, and they were really connecting, and Paul thought they were connecting, and then at some point, he just kind of flipped the script and said, I think this is a scam. Don't ever contact me again. And he wouldn't even take a DNA test to like confirm that Paul was Jack. Really? He wouldn't like because Paul was like, I'll prove it to you with a DNA test. And the guy was like, no, don't ever contact me again. Yep. Wonder what happened there. I don't know. So he tracked down his older sister, who was another full sibling. So this is the last full sibling. She seemed warm at first. He showed up at her house. And she invited him in and they talked and laughed and she said that she didn't remember the twins. She would have only been like five when they were abandoned. So she says she doesn't remember them, but she would like to get to know him and provide any info she could. And they had a really good visit and he asked if he could take her and her daughter to lunch the next day and she said she would like that. And so he left. He went back to her hotel, his hotel room. When he went to pick her up the next day for lunch, she just like flat out ghosted him. Dude, you know... 
Never answered her phone again, never answered her door. She won't talk to him, nothing. I mean, think about it from their perspective, though. This guy's had how many years to know and understand? And it even took him a while to warm up to this idea to even go through with it. These people are getting called and then like, hey, you want to make a split second decision right now? I mean, I can understand like it being a little bit like, I don't don't want to talk to you. Like, you know, that's... Yeah. It could be real weird. I do get what you're saying, but at this point, like, it, this has now been years since this has happened, and they still haven't come around. No. You know? I mean, his story's been all over the news. They know he's not a scammer. Uh, like, they know yeah. this is a legitimate story. All right. They've read his Damn, books. They've right. seen him on 2020. Damn, you're right. Yeah, like, they know he's not a scammer, but also who knows what they went through growing up in that family, like, actually being in that family. Like, if that family could lose twins and nobody gives a fuck about them, abandon one and do something with the other one, who knows what those three kids who grew up with those parents went through. It kind of makes you think about, like, Summer Wells, like, in that whole story. Yeah. So, he was getting, like, zero help. From his, like, immediate fit. You know, his parents were dead. And then one of his sisters was dead. And then one of his sisters is missing. And then the other brother and sister who are alive won't even talk to him. It's like, oh, my God. He's getting, like, zero help. Yeah. And everybody keeps dying. Yeah. But the extended family, like aunts, uncles, cousins, they painted a kind of a grim picture of the twins' existence, like, from what they knew. Most didn't really remember them at all. And the ones that did said that they just vanished. And that they weren't really treated well when they were there with Marie and Gilbert. So when they were gone, it was just kind of like, oh, okay. Everybody just stopped asking about him. It's like, what? So he found out that his mother was a drinker and that his dad was like, a nice guy according to everybody who grew up with him but then apparently went off to Korea and he came back like a totally different person he was kind of a dick he probably had PTSD yeah I'm sure but they didn't call it that back then one uncle told him that Marie was a drinker and that one day he came by unannounced and asked to see the twins and she was pretty upset and she stormed upstairs and came back down carrying the twins like chickens you know how people would carry chickens by their necks oh but he said she was carrying them by their wrists like that just like dangling by their wrists oh my god yeah and that when she got to the bottom of the steps she just kind of like dropped them like here here's the twins you wanted to see them jeez granted that was the uncle that the ex-wife said you can't believe a word that comes out of his mouth and he was extremely ill in the hospital on pain meds when when they finally found it. Because remember, they, I told you he moved around from hotels and they couldn't find him. Yeah. The PI finally found him when he was admitted to the hospital. Ironically, it was the same hospital that Jack and Jill were born in. <laughs> oh, no way. Well, I mean, probably in the same area, right? Yeah. It's in Atlantic City. Anyway, this uncle, the the ex-wife and his kids and everything say you can't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. So Paul doesn't know what to believe. Like, were his parents abusive? Were they not? Obviously, they weren't great people. They abandoned a baby. At least one. Another relative remembers a story about there being something wrong with the twins, so they were sent away, which obviously wasn't true, because Paul's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with him. Other family members remember vague stories about Jill being dropped, but that's never really been explained. So Paul spends years and tons of time and money and research to find this family, and they are dysfunctional, to put it gently. They put the fun in dysfunctional. Yeah. So, meanwhile, him and Michelle split. 
because of this never-ending obsession, which you can't blame him for. He's got to find out, but you can't blame her for either. Like, this completely consumed his life. Did she help a whole lot, or was she just kind of keeping things going at home? Both, but they're still very close, and they co-parent their daughter Emma together. Like, he talks really fondly of her in his books, but this destroyed their marriage. And every time he finds answers, he finds more questions. You know, he finds his birth parents, and it's like, uh, but where's my missing twin? He doesn't ever seem to get to the bottom of it. It just unlocks a new mystery. I mean, one of the things that he did was he flew all the way across the country to New Jersey and he went to the address that his parents lived at when him and his sister went missing. And he had ground penetrating radar done. And then he had to find the guy who owned the lot, pay him to let him dig on his property. And then he spent a summer day in New Jersey digging a hole in a vacant lot looking for his sister's body. I mean... This is like how obsessed he's getting, you know? Yeah. It's pretty intense. And he did find bones when he did that dig on his parents' old lot. But when he took them to a professional, they said they were pig and cow bones, that they were probably like thrown out from a soup or buried after somebody roasted them. That's when he also found out that if his sister was murdered and buried anywhere without a casket, that being that she was only two years old, there wouldn't be any bones left. So probably don't go digging around lots anymore. Is what the (laughs) professional told him. Yeah. So when I say it was like consuming him, that's what I mean. He was like flying across the country and buying shovels and digging up lots. Like that's wild. That is wild stuff. Like that is so much work. Determined. I mean, determined. Yeah, but. And he was also at the time afraid that if he reported her missing, because neither one of them were ever reported missing, he was afraid that if he reported her missing, that the police would take the case away from him and then not tell him anything. So he was trying to do as much as he could himself before he reported her missing. Turns out that wouldn't be the case because it would take years for him to get them to even take the report. And then when they did, it sat on some dip's desk for a year and he didn't do anything. He wouldn't even call the people at Nickmec back or NamUs to get Jill's profile on Nickmec or NamUs. It was really bad. So... That wasn't even a concern. They were like, oh, this happened in the 60s. We're probably not going to work on that. It's got to be so hard to work on something so long ago. All that detective had to do was call NamUs and call NECMEC and give them the missing person's case number. And then they could get her profiles on NECMEC and NamUs. That's all they were asking for. They weren't asking him to spend hours doing anything. Literally just give us a case number. Yeah, it really is like the least they can do, huh? Yeah, A hundred percent it's the least they can do. And I'd blast that detective's name all over this fucking thing if I could remember it from the book, but I can't remember it. (laughs) But Paul says it in his book. So That detective is probably thankful because you're probably going to go to Twitter and online bully him if not. Or if you do remember, I should say. Yeah. So by this point, Paul's met all of his family that is in any way helpful, like all the distant aunts, uncles, cousins, and not one of them even have a picture of the twins. The closest that he's found is a picture of their mother, Marie, when she was pregnant with the twins. Wow. Yeah. But there's no pictures of the... They were two when he was abandoned. So for two years, they either got rid of all the pictures of them or there was never any pictures of them. I'm going to guess there were never any pictures of them. Yeah, that's wild, huh? Uh, That is pretty wild. Like, even on accident, you know, people getting pictures. Yeah. So during this search, a woman named Susan came forward from the neighborhood and she told Paul that she... She had babysat for Gilbert and Marie once and that she had to tell him a horrible story. So he met with Susan and she 
told the story about how when she was 14 years old, she was a babysitter for the next door neighbor. And Marie and Gilbert, who were Paul's biological parents, hired her for an overnight job watching their two daughters, the two daughters that were older than the twins. She was like, yeah, that's great. Apparently overnight babysitting jobs were like super common back then. Like parents used to leave for a whole night and go get a hotel room and everything. Wow. And just leave their kids with babysitters. Yeah. She said it was like totally normal. Way better to just leave your baby out in the cold. Yeah. So when she came in, they said, okay, you know, here are the girls. They can eat whatever they want. They could sleep wherever they want, whatever. And they gave her the rundown of the house. And then casually, before they left, they told her to not bother the twins upstairs. And then they just left. And Susan was like super confused. What do you, what? Yeah. What? Don't, don't bother the twins upstairs. Like the babies upstairs just leave them be right and she she's like well first of all you have twins like i've never seen twins <laughs> right you called me about babysitting your daughters not four kids you know and she couldn't believe that a mother would say that babies didn't need care right for a whole night so she called her sister because four kids was way different than two kids and she was like i need your help <laughs> yeah so her sister came over and helped her with the two girls downstairs and she goes upstairs to check on the twins and when she opens the door to the room where the twins were she was horrified they were in separate cribs in completely pitch black room like oh there wasn't even a nightlight in this room she said that they both whimpered and cried and like cowered in the corner of their cribs when she came in oh my god like most normal babies get excited for attention when somebody comes in yeah. That she said it was the total opposite. And the only oh thing in the God. room was the cribs. There was no toys, no rugs. No, it was just two cribs and two babies. You wouldn't expect like a room with no toys or anything being shared by almost two-year-old twins. Like that's... Yeah. How do they not have any toy? You know? She said the smell was horrendous. The sheets were soiled with urine and feces and their diapers hadn't been changed in a very long time. Oh my God. She said they were filthy and even the milk in the bottle that Jack was holding had curdled and gone rancid. God, how old are these kids again at this point? Almost two. They were like 21 months old. She also said that Jack had a black eye. Oh, well, here we go. It's all coming around. Yep. So she spent the entire night bathing them, changing their diapers. She said they had sores from wearing dirty diapers for so long. The babysitter cleaned the sheets, the crib, everything. Like she spent all night holding them and trying to calm them. She said when she picked them up, they were like shaking and scared. Oh my God. So she spent the whole night with them. Oh, I know. I know. (sighs) So when the Rosenthal's got home the next morning, she said Marie smelled of liquor and was fuming mad that she had tended to the twins even after she told them to leave them alone. The babysitter said she was so scared she left without even getting paid. She was just like, I'm out of here. Like, this this lady's scary. So her and her sister went straight home and they told their parents what they saw. Their parents did the 1963 thing to do and they were like, that's none of your business. Don't bring it up again. Oh my god. Yep. Then shortly after that, wow. the twins vanished. She lived with that for years until she heard Paul's story. And she said she had to convert. Like, over the years, she had convinced herself that they sent the twins away to live with relatives or something. You know, she was trying hard not to think that, like, after that night, they did something to their twins. You know? Yeah. She had to convince herself that they were alive somewhere. And then when she saw Paul's story, she knew that she had to come forward because she's like, oh my god. 
I met you. Like, everybody else is saying they don't even remember the twins. And she's like, oh, my God. You know, she's like, I met you for one night. And I was 14 and I was traumatized. Yeah, holy crap. I To come back and see them as adults, I mean, what a... <sighs> What well, just Jack. We well, okay, to see him as an adult. Is, but yeah. You know, after after living with this for such a long time. Wow. Yep. Man. So the conclusion that Paul kind of eventually came to is that either something bad happened to Jill and they didn't want to explain why they had one twin and not the other, or they abandoned them both, or they sold Jill and then abandoned him. And if that's the case, she might still be out there and alive. Do we think it's likely though? I mean, I'm going to say yes. I think it's likely I know, she's because still alive. he's alive right. and was abandoned. So it's like, I, I feel like it's likely that she is. But it's also possible that they did go too far or something when they were abusing her. And then they couldn't explain why they had Jack and not Jill. So they just got rid of Jack. Yeah. If she is alive, she would be turning 60 this year. So Paul spent like the last 10 years learning as much as he could about this family, hiring PIs to find people, like just to ask how the fuck nobody noticed two missing kids and nobody said anything ever. You know, why the babysitter that babysat them one time for one night was more devastated than anybody else in this family. Like that is so weird to me. It's super weird. I mean, not even that, like the community, like nobody really asked or said anything about these missing twins. Yeah. And when these girls said something, they were told to shut up. Yeah, it's sad. It was a really mind-your-own-business type thing back then. I understand that, but it doesn't make it better. No, no, no. But he's also spent so much time hiring, you know, PIs and psychics and everything. Like, he's tried everything to find his sister. Like, he wants to find Jill. He's even hired forensic artists to do, like, reconstructions of what she might look like today. Which is, like, absolutely insane to try to do an age progression on somebody that there are no photos of. Their ears. It's all in the ears. But they don't even have a photo of her as an infant. They have nothing to go on except that she's Paul's twin. They don't know if they're identical twins or fraternal twins. I guess they're fraternal, huh? They can't be identical. So Yeah. So <laughs> I was going to say they can't be <laughs> yeah. identical. Maybe. So like, but who knows what, you know, she could look a lot like him, but in a, in a girl or form. Or nothing like him. Or look nothing like him. So he's done like nonstop research on abandoned children, trying to find anybody that matches Jill. And no one's matched her description, though. But there has been a lot, a lot of women that have come forward that have questionable histories. And they're like... Maybe I'm Jill, you know, and every single one of them, he DNA tests them. Like, well, let's find out. And none of them <laughs> but none of them been. have turned out to be her. Wow. Nope. And again, she may have no idea that she is, you know, not from the same family. You know, she could be. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. That's why if you're almost 60, if you're like late 50s, early 60s, and you're a white lady, like, just get your <laughs> DNA check just in case you're Jill. Like, just PSA. Just even if you think you know your parents, you know, just make sure. Can we get that on a bumper sticker? Just check your DNA just to make sure. Early 60s white ladies, get your DNA tested. Yeah, late 50s, early 60s. White ladies. So Anyway, so he did eventually make up with his parents, you know, the Franzaks, his turns out to be adoptive parents. Yeah. Happy to hear that. And they have a wonderful relationship. Like, they totally can see each other's side now and everything. You know, it was just emotionally Totally. That's a charged lot. Charged for oh, a yeah. while. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, Chester Franzak, his dad, passed away in 2017. So he didn't get to hear the rest of his story. Ah, man. Well, but his mom's still around. Yeah. 
I, I'm not talking about the resolution of fake Paul. I'm talking about the resolution of the real Paul, their son. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Okay, gotcha. Because Paul, that's been searching for his own family, never stopped searching for the real Paul either. Oh, man, he's just going hard in both areas. Yeah, and so was the FBI because it was reopened. So in 2019, a woman in Michigan took an ancestry DNA test and it matched with David Franzak, Paul's little brother. Oh, no way. And the genetic genealogist tracked her father down as the real Paul Franzak. What? He was kidnapped in 1964. Yep. No way. 55 years later, he was found alive living in Michigan and had no idea he was a kidnapped baby. What? So they were reunited. And is everyone cool on that side of things now, too? <laughs> no. Oh. Well, I guess that makes sense because, I mean, he was an unknown kidnapped baby. Well, he turned out to have been married and divorced and had three daughters, one of which was the genetic match. And he was raised by his mother, Lorraine. And there's not really going to be any answers on how that came to be because she had passed away in 2004. So there's some weirdness there because, you know, he doesn't think his mom kidnapped him. But everybody else is kind of like, yeah, but how'd you end up with her? Yeah, right? Like, hey, man, even if she didn't, we got questions. Yeah. And it is possible that she didn't kidnap him because she does not match the description of the kidnapper from the, you know, the woman dressed as the nurse. So it is possible she's not the one that physically kidnapped him. But but there's still got to be some kind of weirdness there. So yeah, you don't just come up on a kid and not have any answers. Right. So at first, the biological Paul wanted to remain anonymous. He was extremely private. There wasn't a lot of information about him or his background. He didn't respond to Paul's efforts to contact him or his family. Like his kids didn't respond, nothing. So I'm sure that was pretty shocking to find out that you don't know who you are and that you were kidnapped as a baby and you're not who you think you were. So it took him some time to digest that. And nobody understands that more than the Paul we've been talking about this whole time, the fake Paul. Yeah. Because he found that out in 2012 that his life was a lie. What was Paul's, what was, what was real Paul's real, or name? What did he go by? Well, we haven't found out yet. Oh. He wanted to remain anonymous at first, remember? Oh, yeah. And he didn't even contact the Franzaks or Paul or anybody. So he did eventually contact Dora Franzak, his biological mother. And they talked on the phone a couple of times. And she found out that he was a machinist, just like his father, Chester. Oh, no even way. Even though they'd never known each other. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Just in the blood. Yeah, but she also found out that he had cancer and was in treatment. So the real Paul was sick. And this was in 2019. So then COVID hits. And because of Dora's age and his cancer treatments, they had to put their big reunion on hold for a while. So unfortunately, they would never get to meet because he lost his battle with cancer and ended up passing away on April 25th, 2020. No way. Yeah, one day shy of his 56th birthday. Oh my God. His real birthday. Yeah. His obituary read Kevin Beatty, which was the name he was raised with. Okay. And his birthday was listed as March 14th, which was the birthday he always celebrated his whole life. And there was no mention of him being the real Paul Franzak in his obituary or anything. Wow. What a crazy story. Yeah, so there's a lot more to the story and how all the pieces fit together that Paul does a really good job of telling in his books. 
he's written two books about this case. And one's called The Foundling, which is about him being abandoned and then found. And the other one's called True Identity. And they're both amazing books. They're incredibly candid. Like, if you're interested in this story at all, he puts it all out there in, like, chronological order, all about finding his real family, his life with the Franzaks, his marriage, everything. He just lays it out. And the book is impossible to put down. As soon as I finished the first book, I immediately started the second book. It's captivating, huh? Yeah. He even ends the second book with another surprise biological sibling from his biological mother that is also unaccounted for. Oh, wow. Does he do the narration of of his book too? The second one he does. The first one is an actor and you know, it's a great book. The audio version is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great, because I'm not going to read a physical book. I hope you guys know when I say I read the book, I listened to the book. So I think they know that. I did. So, so. yeah. But the first book is narrated by an actor. And it's still a great book. He's a great actor. Everything's fine. The second one is narrated by Paul himself. And it is 100% different when it's in his own words. I was going to say. in his own voice. After doing that with J.C. Lee Dugard, I'm a big proponent of, I really want the actor or the the person, especially something like this, to be the one talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, so he finds another surprise sibling from his biological mother that he found a birth certificate for, but there's no record of that kid existing. So could have been given up for adoption, could have also been abandoned. Like, you have to read these books. Like, if you're into this case, at least he does have a documentary on Discovery Plus. It's called The Lost Sons. You should at least watch that if you don't want to read the books. Uh, I'll listen to him. So in his search, he found the biological Paul, but his kidnapping is still unsolved. But he also found his birth name and his family, but then he has a missing twin sister. Like, everything that he solved, he also, like, created a new problem. Yeah, it's a lot of buildup to be let down. Yeah. He found, like, full-blood siblings, but then for no reason, somehow don't want anything to do with him for, like, zero reason. So he'll never know if they know or don't know. Yeah. Wow. What a crazy story. It's all over the place. Yeah. But the fact that the real Paul was identified 55 years after he was kidnapped gives me even more hope that Jill is still alive. Yeah. You were saying, is it likely that she's still alive? And it's like, I don't know. Paul, Jack, Paul, whatever, was alive. And then the real Paul was alive. Man. I mean, it's one thing to find out you have a sibling. To find out you have a twin you had no idea about, that's that's some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. Well, kind of like you said, too, when you were talking about how, like, oh, he remembers what went on in his life. It's like, maybe that's why he's been kind of restless his whole life and always felt like he was searching for something. Oh, that's a good... Searching for his sister. That's a really good... Yeah, that's a really good insight. And had no idea why he was a wanderer going everywhere. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. So, pretty wild. Genetic genealogy is really wild. I mean, that we're just... They're going to figure everything out. I know. And they're just scratching the surface with it, too. I know. Like we said, if you're like a 57 to 63-year-old woman, maybe just put your DNA. Do the ancestry thing just just to make sure. Just to, you know, just run it through. Make sure there's no murderers or anything like that in your, you know, bloodline. You know, it's for the good of everybody. Yep. Maybe find a missing person in the meantime. Yep. All right. So who is our missing person for this week? Well, I think our missing person is going to be Jill Rosenthal. Oh, interesting. Okay, I like that. So we'll post the reconstructions that Paul had made on our Instagram and try to spread them around a little bit more. And if you take a look at this reconstruction and you're like, 
Oh, well, my mom's 58 to 63, but she doesn't look like that. Well, don't worry about that. Just do the DNA anyway. Yeah. Look at her ears. Maybe they match. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, all right, buddy. Well, I'll let you go because it's getting pretty late. All right. Well, this was a great episode. Thank you for putting this all together while I was laying on beaches in uh, Kauai. Yeah. No problem. Well. (laughs) I was like, are we done? Yeah. I don't know what to do. All right. Well, I guess that's it. All right. Well, I love you. Okay. I love you too. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a production of Orange Halo Media LLC, hosted by Grant and Erica. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. To chat with us, go to From Crime to Crime on Instagram, From Crime to Crime on TikTok, From Crime the Number Two Crime on Twitter, or you can visit our website at FromCrimeToCrime.com. See you next Wednesday.